So now we're back to more clinical type things after your lovely board meeting and all your awards and nominations. So this is a little drier, but it, it's also in the form of a review. A lot of this you know, uh, a lot of it you don't know, and I hope I can bring nuances to it. But these are very common lesions that we see all the time, and there's actually a lot of buzz right now, political and different things going on with this topic. When I was the first editor of the pamphlet editorial board, I changed the definition of actinic keratosis from precancerous to the earliest stage in the continuum of skin cancer. Now, there's been a trend to go back to precancerous. This is really, from my point of view, obviously not a good thing. Why is that? And why was it happening when I took over? Because in the year 2000, Florida wanted, met Florida Medicare wanted not to cover actinic keratosis. Why? If they're benign, they don't have to be treated. If they don't have to be treated, guess what? Medicare doesn't have to cover it. So it was very important at that juncture of time. Now, if you even look in books like Jean Bologna's book, she'll tell you there's a controversy. To that end, in this summer, 2014, uh, Suzanne Connolly and Henry Lim will be going to Europe, and there will be a forum to try to put uh, more of a definition or come to a consensus about it, but especially with what's going on in healthcare these days and other things, uh, it's going to be very important. Obviously, I think actinic keratosis should be treated. Okay, so this is the epidemiology of AKs. Um, first of all, uh, the number of AKs in the population at a certain time is the prevalence and it's divided by the number of people at that time in the population. The data estimates based on regional studies within each country. So you're gonna see a difference, okay? Prevalence is generally higher in males. Why? That also is statistical, right? When I was a resident, we used to say actinic and all non-melanoma and melanoma. Uh, skin cancers were more common in fair-skinned, light-eyed people, males who worked outside, fishermen, sailors, et cetera, and farmers. But due to changing nuances, people thinking that the tan is beautiful, people with more money traveling all year round so that people go to the Caribbean or are exposed to the sun all year round, it really is increasing with everyone. So then you see in the United States, we talk in terms of 26%, but of course Australia is much higher. And we really, uh, see I jump around, so you'll, you'll follow with me. So this is what I was just telling you about the earliest development, and I say not precancerous. So keep your radar on this, and we're gonna see what actually happens with this. Um, I tend to think that they're gonna say precancerous, but that's for some other reason, which when we talk more about basal cells, I'll allude back to it. It has to do with coverage, this is really, they all should be treated. First of all, they're not nice looking anyway, but they really should all be treated, but whether they're gonna be paid or not, that's something else. Anyway, we said that it's important biologically and scientifically, it is correct. If you look at studies, there's a P53 change, and that's where we get in the earliest stage in the continuum of skin cancers. And as I said, it's also important socioeconomically so that it gets covered. Now, why do people cling to this precancerous? Well, one is a, a mental reason, which I don't think is a very good one, actually. It gives them confidence. Oh, it's just a precancerous lesion. Well, it's just a precancerous lesion. You don't have to treat it. So who's happy about that? Certainly, we're not happy about not treating it. 
The other thing is that there are two other studies. One is the P53 study. Then there is another study that says some actinics go away. I don't think that study is right. I think they just flake off. That's my opinion, and they're not as um, noticeable. And then the other study is right. Some actinics just stay there and just don't do anything, don't progress. That's true, but that's not a reason to not treat them. Okay. So it is estimated that 0.025% to 1% of AKs a year will progress to more invasive cancers, Bowen's disease, etc. 2 to 10% of squamous cell carcinomas will metastasize, and therefore it really is important that actinics are treated. Now, you know what an actinic looks like. They're epidermal lesions, they're skin colored, they can be reddish brown, they can be flat, they can be slightly elevated and hypertrophic, they can be mottled, they can be crusty, and there are plenty of variants, and they're sandpaper-like, they can be pigmented, they can be one or two, or they can be coalescing. And on the lips, we refer to it as actinic chylitis. So here you see this lovely lady, my patient, and you can see some obvious actinics, but you can really see that her whole face is really involved, and therefore they all should be treated. And here's a man who really only has this, and that's what he had, just one unique lesion in the glabellar area, not too much of anything else. Little sun damage. Now here's a man, I don't know if you can see this. Is there a pointer on here? Maybe there is. No, I don't know. It says pointer, but is it going? I guess not. But can you see on the side of his neck, there's a hyperkeratotic lesion and a hyperkeratotic lesion on his ear? And those are, you know, I wish I could, I can't get it, but, oh, maybe I did get it. I see it, but it's not going. All right. And here we have some pigmented AKs in a field of erythematous scaly AKs on an arm. Hands and lip. Now this lady also was very interesting because she kept insisting to me, this is nothing, I have a cold, I'm always, my nose is always running and that's what it is, but of course it isn't. And this goes to treatment algorithms as well. We usually make clinical diagnosis with actinic keratosis, what, what, oh, thank you. We usually make clinical diagnoses with actinic keratosis, and we don't biopsy. But once in a while, a biopsy is called for, including with this lady, you see those lesions, because she didn't believe that it was anything that needed to be treated. So we had to make a little biopsy and prove it to her. Okay, so under the microscope, pathologically, there's dysplasia of the epidermis with abnormal keratinocytes at the basal layer, abnormal cellular polarity in the lower epidermis, nuclear atypia in the basal layer, mitotic figures present, which extend up the granular layer and are in the cornified layers, but not into the dermis. That's why it's early. Uh, there can also be parakeratosis and hyperkeratosis. And etiology, you all know the etiology, ultraviolet light exposure very early in life, usually actinics appear after the age of 40. 40 is actually a young age, uh, and they're more prevalent, as I said, in fair-skinned, light-eyed people who work outside but can be in all geographic areas. It's increasing due to the depletion of the ozone layer, cultural attitudes, which we talked about the tans, and travel throughout the year, including the winter. It's very important that you remind your patients that the sun reflects off the snow and can give you a burn and that they should be wearing sunscreen and protecting themselves. They, they just forget about that and uh, they really have to protect themselves.
Okay, so what about this photocarcinogenesis? UVB contributes to C to T and CC to TT mutations in P53 in 60% of actinic keratoses. Uh, it also is, suppresses cutaneous immunity and releases inflammatory mediators that affect cytokines, mast cells, prostaglandins, immunosuppression, and Langerhans cells. The genetic tumor markers prove that AKs are in the continuum of skin cancer involving P53 and allows for the replication of DNA-damaged cells. There's no apoptosis, and this allows cancerous cells to survive and causes field cancerization, very important treatment, uh, and lateral spread of the whole area. Further, UVB exposure causes adjacent monoclonal colonies to be affected, and Nelson reported 53% of AKs to have the P53 mutation, 16% have a RAS oncogene. So, here you have a summary of how AKs and invasive squamous cell carcinoma would have genetic similarities and the basics for saying it's the earliest stage of skin cancer. AKs and squamous cells are histologically similar, and many of the molecular changes in invasive squamous cells are already present in AK lesions. The P53 gene mutations are common in both AKs and squamous cells and present in 69% of squamous cells and 53% of AKs. The P16 tumor suppressor gene mutations are found in both AKs and squamous cells. Compared with AKs, squamous cells are characteristically more frequent mutations in P16 and significantly lower expression of P16. This is consistent with AKs being the earliest form. Other genetic changes that have been noted are telomerase and RAS gene activation and BCL2 surviving HOX. C4, this homobox C4, 7 expression. So there's been a lot of work on it. Now, this is a nice slide that shows how AKs can be uh, transformed or progressing into invasive squamous cell carcinoma. The initial lesion from the first mutation to attenuation of cell cycle control mutations are the key to gene-driven transition to squamous cells, and in ultraviolet light damaged skin, immunosuppression may facilitate growth and spread of the tumor. So you see the, the uh, normal cell, and here it's transformed into an abnormal keratinocyte. Now, this is an interesting thing. Vitamin D plays a role in skin cancer prevention. A gene for vitamin D receptor, VDR, is polymorphic and can increase or decrease transcription activity and receptor is occupied, and this affects vitamin D's effect on tumor growth, which can also influence the susceptibility to developing AKs. So in Australia, the VDR polymerase TAC1 and APA1 genotypes predispose to AKs versus this FOC1 type. So now we come to treatment modalities of AKs. And how do you pick one? There's a lot to choose from. So you have to consider the type of lesion. Is it flat? Is it unique? Is it hyperkeratotic? Uh, the number, again, is it one or you want to treat the whole field? Are they coalescing? 
The location, is it on the face where we do have to worry about cosmesis or even timing of a treatment to fit into the patient's lifestyle, or is it on the back and the arms where it isn't as noticeable, let's say, to them? The age of the patient, are they going to do what we say? You know, you can tell a patient to stand on their head and maybe it's going to work, but if they're not going to do it, then what good is it? So you have to find something suitable for your unique patient at that time. Maybe in January they'll do something, but uh, in December when they have to go to a Christmas party, they're not going to do it. So you really have to think when you treat a patient. Their health, are they uh, strong enough to withstand whatever treatment you decide you're going to do? Again, compliance. Are they going to do it? You tell them to put something on twice a day. Are they really going to do it or are they only going to do it once a day? Are they going to skip it? Or are they going to do it as long as they should do it? And uh, their social circumstances. I, I alluded to Christmas. Uh, some people are in the public eye. I have a patient. He drives me crazy, although he did just do topical. He has been a patient for many years. He's Irish skin. He just refused to do topical field therapy because he didn't want a big, you know, reaction and to be whatever. So for a long, long time, we just kept freezing little areas and frustrated the hell out of me until finally he, he did it. Uh, the, then we pick a, a, a treatment and decide its efficacy, tolerability, convenience, the cosmesis, the cost. Cost is getting to be quite an issue with a lot of the things that I'm going to talk about, uh, especially with uh, Medicare. Now, um, let me just finish this slide and I'll go back to that. Uh, and so what is your goal of treatment? Is it diagnostic? As I said with that lady, do you have to prove to her that it's really a lesion that has to be treated and you want a biopsy of it? Uh, is it therapeutic? You really want to get rid of all of this stuff. Is it palliative, like with this man, you know, if, but at least freezing did something to as many lesions as I could do because I just had to do what I could. He wouldn't cooperate. Is it maintenance? Have we treated it and now are we trying to prevent new lesions from occurring? Uh, and is it preventive? And so multiple therapies may be used in the same patient, either at a different time of, of you know, as I said, in December or January, or at this visit, we, we do one thing, they come back in two weeks, we do something else, or at different uh, times or different areas of the body. You may decide to do something on the face and something completely different on the arms. So we start from the get-go. Biopsy. Biopsy is important if we really want to make the diagnosis, as I said, and we want to, or if we want to confirm the diagnosis for related diseases like Bowen's, basal cells, cutaneous horn, the man with the ear. It's just easy to just snip that thing off and send the whole thing out. Uh, and, you know, and just treat it all at once. Uh, pigmented actinics versus melanoma versus pigmented basal cells, or even benign lesions. They may look like that, and it may turn out to be a seborrhea keratosis, totally benign, or lichen planus-like keratosis, or a scaly lentigone. Now we have treatment. So, we, which we could treat and biopsy at the same time if we choose to curatage or shade. We'd get rid of the lesion, send it to the, body, the laboratory, and we get a result. But we also have to consider the appropriate depth. This is especially important when we get to the non-melanomic skin cancers, the morphia-type basal cells. You want a deep area so that the pathologist has a good specimen. Okay? And, of course, excision. We rarely excise actinics except for what I said, like with the ear, and, uh, you know, it's just more feasible to do a cutaneous horn maybe that way. Cryosurgery. 
Prior surgery is really the gold standard for treating actinic keratosis. It's the gold standard of destructive therapies. It's very easy. You get a 98% cure rate. You can do multiple lesions. It's fast. And you can treat multiple lesions, more than 15. We pick 15 because that's what Medicare uh, says. We have its own codes for actinic keratosis, the 17 thousand codes, 117000, Now these expect to see a big reduction in 2014. Why? Because we do a lot of it. And what does Medicare not want to do? Spend money. So they're hitting us right and left. Topical chemotherapies. This is very good for field therapy, where the patient does it at home, but you can cover a large area and treat areas that may be not so obvious to the patient, but you know they're there lurking, so you want to get them all out and treat them instead of waiting for this year and next month and next year and all of that. And so it brings out these uh, preclinical lesions, and uh, it's good for cosmesis. It's beneficial in prevention, treatment, and prophylaxis. So here's this man, and as you can see, you can see a couple of unique lesions, but this whole area is really involved. That's the senile antigeny in the bottom. But he really needs field therapy. And this woman, I hope you can see this, because usually we tell the patients to take the makeup off. With actinics, it's almost just the opposite. You can see the makeup caking up on that. Now, that doesn't look pretty, even from a cosmetic point of view. At least, I don't think so. And with a man also, I tell them, just rub your hand lightly on top of the forehead, and you feel all that sandpaper. And sometimes they'll even say to you, oh, yeah, I felt that. I knew that something was there. But they're not clinically obvious, but they're there. Again, this, you can see this nice actinic and this actinic, but this whole area is sun damaged and, and needs treatment. Okay? Now, this is a very interesting uh, uh, lesion because it looked like an actinic, and I actually treated it for a while as an actinic, and then something says to me, ah, it's angry, it's not going away. So it was biopsied, and this was an amelanotic melanoma. And that's his surgery. So don't be cocky even with actinics. Like I said, we very rarely biopsy it. It's a clinical diagnosis. But if you're having trouble really clearing a patient, say, am I missing something? Because sometimes they can be deceiving. OK, so if we're going to use even cryo versus a topical regime, we have to pick one. And so how do we pick a choice of drug? We consider, again, the patient his social commitments, is he going to cooperate, his expectations, you got to tell them, this is going to make it red and bring these things out. His finances, a very big one, and these days it's getting to be worse and worse. The time, what kind of a treatment period do you want? You want two weeks, you want two days, uh, and the extent of the lesions. And so you have to tailor your treatment to the individual at that time and accommodate the situation. Now, if you think something really has to be done, then just like with this, with this amelanotic melanoma, then you're forceful and you decide, but you've got to have reasons to sell that to the patient too. Okay, so here are our topical therapies that we have at our disposal. And so we have 5-fluorouracil. This is the oldest traditional. It was the gold standard. It might still be, as far as I'm concerned, in a way it's making a comeback, and I'll tell you why. 
Uh, you apply a small amount to the entire area, two times a day, two to four weeks time. I pick three, because it's just in between. And it's a fluorinated pyrimidine five fluorouracil that blocks the methylation of dioxyuridylic acid to thymidylic acid in the DNA, altering the, only the fast-dividing cancerous cells. Now, this too, sometimes the patients, you know, say this, is it going to be all over or this and that? I tell them, okay, put a little on your belly every time you put it on your face, and you'll see it won't react with normal cells that aren't fast-dividing, only with the fast-dividing cells. And the worse you look, the more important it was that you did it. For one or two, it wasn't worth the time and effort to do that. I could just curette it or freeze it, but want to do the whole thing. Now, there are different fluorouracil preparations available. You have the 1%, 2%, and 5% solutions. We really don't use that anymore. The 1% and the 5% cream. We usually use the 5% cream. Then there's a 0.5% cream with a microsphere delivery system that traps the active ingredients in the skin surface to increase its efficacy. Now, some people use this as maintenance. Some people cycle it. Some people use it prior to cryosurgery. So you can do combinations to enhance your treatments. Um, it does elicit erythema, scaliness, crusts. You can avoid this supposedly with the milder preparations, but even the milder ones can give you a good reaction in certain uh, patients and certain skin types. And they are self-limited. I mean, if you keep going with this, eventually it's going to stop. We don't do that, obviously, because it's unnecessary and the patients certainly don't like it. But it would stop. And it can be reversed uh, at the end of your treatment period with topical steroids or high hyaluronic acids if you want it to go faster. Now, there are some schools of thought that says let it heal on its own. It's going to get a better result because it's more lingering. But there again, you have to deal with patients, you know, and they usually want to clear it up right away, which is what I tell them, too. The day you when we figure out a time period in their lives to do this, the day you start it, it doesn't look as bad as the day you end it. And the day you end it, it's not going to look gorgeous the next day either. So that if you have a wedding, you know, you got a plan. You know, funny, other doctors always say to me, how do you know so much about your patient's personal lives? You know, when somebody gets sick, uh, they, even a flu or whatever, the world stops. They stay home from work, whatever. They call the doctor, they go to the hospital, and they're at the, the, the internist's beck and call. But with us, they're ambulating, and they're doing all these things, and we have to try try to fit treatment into their life cycle. So you have to worry about that, too. So here's a woman, and uh, she put this on her chest. Now, she, she was also very interesting because she became addicted to it. She really did. I told her twice a day for three weeks, but she'd, and, and every time she'd come back to the office, I still was red and blotchy. Well, what is this? And so she would say to me, yeah, but this one just came out two days ago. It didn't get three weeks worth of treatment. And I said to her, look, if you don't stop this, I'm going to just go and take it away from you. You got to stop it for now. And this man, this was a very nice one because you can see, uh, well, this arm was treated and this one is the control. It just worked out that way because he didn't want to do two arms at once. And then when he came in, I said, oh, this is a nice picture of before and after. But it shows because this one actually, all right, to me it looks actinic all over and obviously had the good uh, reaction, but it, it isn't the worst one I've ever seen. And look at this big reaction. Now, diclofenic 
Sodium, 3% in a 2.5% hyaluronic gel is another preparation. It's colorless. You apply it twice a week, uh, twice a day, I'm sorry, for two to three months. Two to three months. This is a long time. This is package insert. So, I mean, I don't know who really does that. I don't know what patient is going to cooperate with you that long, but that's really how it's supposed to be. The uh, mechanism of action is unknown, but it is an ANSAID, and this may involve prostaglandin levels in uh, UV-exposed skin and upregulation of COX-2, and this might promote uh, proliferation. The uh, cyclooxygenase is the rate-limiting step, enzyme step in prostaglandin synthesis. The reaction isn't that severe, and compliance, uh, may, if compliance is a problem, then this might be the way to go, but then compliance can be a problem because who's going to do it in two to three months? But, so it may have a place for mild uh, lesions where you want to use it. Amiquamod. Now, amiquamod was approved as a 5% in uh, 2004. And this, for a while there, was becoming the real gold standard. Everybody compl uh, compares now to amiquamod, although I told you that FUDX 5-fluorouracil uh, is coming back into vogue. Why is it also coming back into vogue? I said I'd get back to that, because this is very expensive. And you know, these drug companies try to tell you that we're seeing actinics in younger patients. Yes, we are, but still the majority of patients are over 65. They're Medicare. The coupons don't work. The secondary insurances don't work. It's very frustrating. So that's why even in my hands, I hadn't been using 5-FU for a while very much. All of a sudden, I'm starting to use it again. It's a good drug, but these drugs seem to be have a have had a better place lately, but they're not covered and people can't get them. So this is a problem. Now, 5% uh, became generic. And uh, also, in my hands, the generic is really not the same as the branded. The branded, of course, we didn't like the tiny little packets, but it came into a cream, so that penetrates. But the generic is liquidy. It's more like a lotion, so it doesn't penetrate for, uh, quite as well. Uh, anyway, it's applied twice a day for up to 16 weeks. There again, that's the package insert. I would never do 16. No patient is going to do it for four months. They're just not going to do it. So commonly we do it, try to do it for eight to 12 weeks. So what happened? They came out with a different preparation, a 3.75% that's applied two weeks on, then you give a rest, two weeks off, and then repeat it two weeks, another challenge. The second challenge, you won't get as much of a reaction as the first, but there again, it's very hard to use because once the patient starts to clear up and maybe now it's Christmas time or who knows what, they're going on vacation, it's very hard to try to get them to re-challenge. But it does work better than, let's say, if you wanted to do it three weeks straight, the data shows that it does work better two weeks on, two weeks off, two weeks on again. The 2.5%, which is milder, why do they want it milder? Because they really want less of a reaction to make it more patient uh, amenable, was approved in 2011, but it, uh, it's really not even pushed very much. I don't, I really, I've never used it myself. Uh, and that's supposed to be used daily for six weeks. Uh, the amiquimod 
has a different mechanism of action. It's an immune response modifier that induces mRNA encoding cytokines like alpha interferon, TNF, and interleukin-12 for a cytotoxic T lymphocyte response. There is a direct proaptotic effect in challenging cancerous cells as a result of bypassing transduction paths, activating caspase-3 downstream of membrane-bound death receptor activation. So therefore, uh, it is a toll-like receptor 7 agonist, and it acts at the endosomal membranes of the immune system, and it may work by reprogramming gene expression meaning mediated by TR, TLR7 signaling pathway. This is why they make a claim, there is a claim, that you'll get more long-lasting results with this than you will with a 5-FU. You do get a severe reaction, but there isn't supposed to be as much pain. Now, the internists, the patients run to these internists who say it's infected and it's this and it's that and it's really not. And then sometimes, you know, you could get a little swelling, which may be a little annoying, but people look at it and they think it should hurt. So you have a little hand-holding there, but it gives you excellent cosmetic results when it heals. And so we tweak the application process to make it more user-friendly. Uh, the immune response modifier may give the longer-lasting results, I said that, and it's good for field therapy where you can use it all over, but you have to have follow-up care and hand-holding. So this lady oh, drove me crazy. I don't know if you can see it, but she has in here actinic keratosis, damage. So but she didn't look too bad, but it's right across her nose. I don't know if it's projecting well over there. It is in the little screen. And there is she starting to use it. And you see, I was in California giving a talk, and she, they called. And there she is healing. Now, there she is, and she came in Christmas Eve about this lesion. So what do you do when you have a lesion that re either reappears or you didn't, it just doesn't seem to heal? That's an indication for you to biopsy it. Maybe it's deeper. Maybe it's Bowen's already and, and should be done which, of course, she didn't want to do on Christmas Eve. Okay, so here's the 3.75% that we use in cycles. It gives you a 35.6% complete clearance. Now, I just went over this with them, too. It isn't the greatest complete clearance. I mean, we like to see in the 90s, but that's really their data. 58.3% partial clearance and 81.8% median reduction in lesions as comparable to the 5%. So you see this, uh, how he starts, and then he clears. The re-challenge isn't as bad as this one, and now he is clear again. So a randomized study of topical 5% amiquimod versus topical 5-FU versus cryosurgery was done. And here's your groups, and it's applied the way we said. Uh, three times a week for over four weeks for the 5%, two times a day for four weeks for the 5-FU, and the cryosurgery. And in this particular study, I don't know why that the, um, the cryosurgery doesn't come out as well as, as it should, but they got pretty good results with the other. And the sustained clearance, they're trying to show you that amiquimod gives sustained clearance versus 5-FU versus cryosurgery. Now, a lot of this is also in the hands of the uh, operator, of the physician. In other words, you know, how do you do cryo? You know, are you getting a good depth or are you just doing it lightly or whatever? So, but that, that is in the literature. 
And so again, this is a Miklamod's claim to fame that it gives you sustained clearance. Subjects who achieved complete clearance at week eight in the phase three studies were enrolled in a 12-month observational follow-up to assess sustained clearance, and they returned for uh, visits at six and 12 months, and at the end of phase three study or until they had recurrence, 66.7% had complete clearance and remained lesion-free for six months. Six months is six months, you know, it's not forever. 40.5% uh, subjects were complete free for 12 months. So the newest approved topical chemotherapy, which is also out over a year now, but it is the latest in our armamentarium, is Inginolmibutate, with PEP005. It's a natural diterpene from the Euphoria peplus flowering plant in Southeast Asia. It was originally found in Australia, but they tell me it grows in the cracks of the cement in New York City as well. And it was approved in uh, January 2012, so we're coming up on two years as a gel. And there it is. There's the, you see the plant, and that's how it's the chemical. And when you break it, it's a white sap. The mechanism of action is that it augments neutrophil killing ability of abnormal cells by damaging mitochondria. Its anti-angiogenic properties promotes healing and skin rejuvenation, regeneration. It's proven histologically in superficial basal cells as well, which is actually very interesting because this drug is only approved for actinics in the United States and it's not even approved for actinics anyplace out of the United States. And even though they have these superficial basal cell studies, they didn't go for an indication of superficial basal cells uh, until later. Uh, it's, uh, but we do use it. Um, okay, so you apply it for two to three days only, depending whether you're doing it on the chest or on the face. And of course, the studies were for four to eight lesions in 25 centimeters square. We use it all over or as much as you can get out of the little bottle. Uh, the uh, 0.025 preparation gave a 38% complete clearance and is tolerable in the initial studies, and the 0.125% preparation gave 100% clearance. These were the initial studies because it irritated. That's not what was approved. The phase three studies are the 0.15% applied daily for three days to the head and neck areas, and uh, they were followed for 57 days. And the 0.05% was applied twice a day to body areas. Now, I also, I use them a little bit interchangeably off-label, too, if I, to try to get a better result. Now, when you use it for two to three days, it peaks on the fourth day. So the day that they stop it, the next day they look redder. On the chest, it can go for a little longer, too. So here's a nice slide, and it shows you the PEP-005 and how it works in here with the apoptosis and the mitochondria. There's another one. I like this slide with this nice big cell in the middle, but it basically shows you the dual mechanism of action based on studies in squamous cell and melanoma, which it's not approved for, but... If they're using it on studies of that, you can imagine that it's going to work in AKs. So here we have baseline, and you can see it going through until 57 days complete healing and remains that way. Now, it also makes it red, don't you see? So you have to handhold. You've got to tell them it's going to do this. Now, photodynamic therapy. I don't know how many of you have access to light source and use photodynamic therapy. 
but uh, it does work and it is a very good thing to do. It's a short course of treatment, especially for field therapy. There again, if you look in package inserts, it's gonna say six lesions, because that's what the FDA approved, but it's really not even worth doing. It's not worth putting your patient through it, and it's too costly for that sort of thing. Now this, being an in-office procedure, is covered by Medicare, so that might be a reason to use it. Two, it comes in a single-use aminolevulanic acid uh, stick, uh, and this is a natural photosensitizer. The 5-ALA is accumulated in the damaged cells and is converted by light to potoporphin 9 a photo and photosensitizes, and that generates a cytotoxic free oxygen radical that destroys the mitochondria and plasma membranes in dystrophic cells. It's not to be used, therefore, in patients who have porphyria. Yesterday you heard about PCT. Same thing, you don't want to use it in them. So it's applied uh, now. It was originally approved to be applied, let's say, at night, and the patient come back the next morning and expose them to a light source to activate it. We now do short contact, because that wasn't patient-friendly either. It's difficult to get a patient to go back and forth, and older patients who may need a ride and all sorts of things, these things are difficult uh, to get them to do. So now it's applied for 20 to 60 minutes, even an hour and a half. The longer you let them sit in the waiting room with it, the better reaction you're gonna get. Uh, prior to the exposure to blue light we use, you can also use an IPL. Uh, the blue light is 420 nanometers for 16 minutes, 40 seconds. I do 17 minutes. Uh, with a 560 filter, double pulsed at 3.333 millisecond duration with a 10 millisecond delay, or a pulsed eye laser with a seven millimeter spot, anything that's gonna activate it. At 3.5 joules per centimeter square as well, you can use a 532 nanometer laser and anything that activates it, even natural sunlight. But we really don't want natural sunlight, why? Because these wavelengths won't cause skin cancer. Natural sunlight has all the bad rays in it, so you don't want them to do that. Penetration can be enhanced by uh, longer incubation, by using it pre-treatment with microdermabrasion, peels, acetone scrubs, or even retino retinoic acid, which usually we stop before all these things because you don't want a bigger reaction. But if you have a patient with very stubborn lesions and hyperkeratotic lesions, you can customize your regime to that situation. So here's the lady, and you see that we did it on her chest. Now, there is another product which has been approved, and it's approved in the United States, but it just really never caught on here. I don't even know why, but it didn't, because most of us were using the, uh, the other one, the, the uh, blue light one, and this one is a cream. Uh, methyl 5 aminolevulinic cream is 160 milligrams per gram, and it needs a three-hour incubation period prior to exposure to a red light. So those of us who have a blue light, we're not going out quick to buy a red light. A red light is 630 nanometers, and at 75 joules per centimeter square may increase efficacy due to the correlation of the protoporphin 9 action and the uh, longer incubation. So is this user-friendly? Not so much. So that's why really uh, in the United States, blue is better. But this is available too. 
Okay, so same thing. PDT may cause burning, edema, redness for three to 10 days afterwards. Uh, you can, again, use anti-inflammatories, hyaluronic acid, moisturizers, and sunscreens. And there again, people will say, if you don't use this, it stays red or longer, but you get a hype of, of reaction, but you've got to make it user-friendly. The same way I offer the patients a fan underneath the unit if it gets too hot. Some people say that that might also, in some patients, decrease some uh, efficacy, but they're not going to do it if you don't do, make it a little bit more comfortable. The advantage is that it's fast. You can do field therapy. It clears 89% of patients, and it, as soon as they leave your office, they're in the healing phase already, so it's one day. It's even faster than uh, ingenoma butate. And, of course, it's covered by Medicare. Uh, it may need retreatment depending upon the patient and the protocol, as with everything else. Uh, and, of course, you should biopsy unresponsive lesions. Chemical peeling. Chemical peeling can be used. We don't think of it. But when you try to combine regimes, especially if you have a sun-damaged, senile, indigenous, uh, wrinkled person who would want a cosmetic procedure, then maybe you can think about one that can hit more than one um, problem. So it destroys undesirable skin cells. And of course, you know, we have mild ones that aren't going to do that much. We're talking about lunchtime peels, uh, medium, and deep peels. Deep peels can really treat actinic keratosis. And it depends upon your goal of treatment. As I said, the lifestyle of the patient, the economy, and uh, the time that they're willing to put into the healing and, and whatever. Jesner solution, 50% trichloroacetic acid, beta and alpha hydroxy acids, vitamin C, antioxidants, they've all been used. They can be used as monotherapy or in conjunction with other modalities to increase penetration or as maintenance. Laser resurfacing and dermabrasion. I don't know, dermabrasion isn't that, used that often anymore, but uh, I published this too. It was a lady, you're gonna, I think you'll see her. She was very wrinkled and she had a lot of actinics and actinic damage, so we tried to combine the situation and uh, treat everything. Uh, carbon dioxide laser removes skin cells and actinically damaged cells. Uh, the number of treatments depends upon the depth and the destruction that you desire, and you have to consider the downtime. Uh, with a carbon dioxide fractional laser, you have to stay in, inside for the first week. Why? First of all, you want them to apply uh, emollients, so where are they going with this grease? And it's very, very red. After the week, they can use sunscreen and makeup to hide it, but the first week, they should be home. Uh, and there's a little bit of discomfort and a little bit of swelling and erythema involved, and so, again, you can use this for photo damaged skin, actinic keratosis, and rejuvenization therapy all at once. So here she is. You see this actinics, you see the browns, you see the wrinkles, and there she is on the other side, and that's right after the procedure was done. You see it looks brown and crusty, and this is all going to peel off, and she's going to heal, and she looks very good. Topical retinoic acid. It's approved for treatment of photodamaged skin types one since the 1990s. It's old. And we have cream and gel formulations. They're applied at night with sunscreen in the daytime. Why do we put sunscreen in the daytime? Because they're causing a microscopic peel. We don't want to see big peel with peeling. That's not nice looking anyway. So we want to apply it at night when it's dark, all year round it's dark from here to the equator. And in the daytime, sunscreen to protect the skin. 
The mechanism of action is unknown. Retinoids are needed for maintenance of epithelial differentiation and maturation. They indirectly downgrade proto-oncogenes, and they may have a role in maintenance or by increasing cellular turnover, as I said, and differentiation as adjunctive therapy to enhance the penetration of topical regimes, and especially with 5-FU, with a, you've seen men, bald-headed men with the thick uh, actinics, if you use the um, retinoic acid at night and the uh, 5-FU in the daytime, it increases the penetration and uh, you can get a better result. And this is why we say, because it increases, normally we stop it prior to laser peels, PDT, to uh, avoid this increased sensitivity. So we have combination therapy. That's what the goal is. I know it can also be, especially even when you're talking about cosmetic procedures, combination is where it is, but it's more time-consuming and more expensive for the patient. So you have to mix and match pre and post up modalities and think again, what's the aim? Are you trying to palliate? Are you trying to get rid of? Are you going to try to prevent? So a study to this end was done, cryosurgery with amiquimod, 3.75%. Cryosurgery, uh, the lesions are directed treatment. Amiquimod is more field treatment, and it uh, has this immunologic basis. And can you use the two together? And sequentially, the answer is yes. So here's the endpoint of this study, and you can see that uh, it does enhance the uh, results. So this slide I put together that just shows you all the different things that we have. Now, this is a very interesting slide, I think, because you can extrapolate this slide for treatment of AKs, non-melanotic skin cancers, you know, basal cells and squamous cells, and even melanoma. This way, the destructive methods, excision. So we already talked about that we rarely excise AKs. You can excise basal cells. You can excise squamous cells. And of course, excision is the uh, treatment of choice for melanoma. Curatage and electrodesiccation, we rarely do it for uh, actinics, but it can be done. Certainly you do it for basal cells. Certainly you do it for squamous cells. Cryotherapy, you do it for everything, not melanoma. And laser. Again, you have to know what your goal is, and it's more appropriate for wrinkly uh, actinic damage uh, people, but it can be used. The chemical field method. We talked about all the topical chemotherapies and photodynamic therapy and uh, chemical peels. Now, to this end also, I might say that imiquimod and 5-FU are FDA-approved for superficial basal cells, so that one can treat basal cells also with uh, topical means. Now, we call this, it's a little off-label, but we give you a hint. This is what I call the model. You know the model? The model therapy. Why? Daryl Regal was the one who first introduced this, and it's really technically off-label. He had a model who didn't want to go undergo any kind of a destructive uh, modality that he'd have to say could leave some sort of a blemish or a scar. So you treat with just... Um, Amiquimod could be under occlusion or not under occlusion. You get a rip-roaring reaction, but it heals beautifully. There's a lot of off-label uh, ways of using amiquimod, including after uh, electrodesiccation or cryosurgery. This increases uh, the, the benefits if there's any kind of a cancerous cell hanging around that uh, maybe it's going to get rid of it, but it also makes them heal very, very pretty. So uh, there's a lot to be said for that. And then, of course, your maintenance methods. Sunscreens, of course, are a must. 
but you can use the chemical peels, IPL, PDT, retinoic acid, and even topical chemotherapy. There are those dermatologists that like to cycle this or spot, you know, oh, if you see something coming up, use the, the topical. I personally don't like that. I think it just confuses the issue myself. They come in, you don't know if it's red because that's the lesion or it's deeper or whatever, uh, and you have to see them back or, you know, you just never know what you're dealing with or if it's just a, a reaction from the uh, topical regime that they've started themselves again. So basal cell carcinoma. Basal cell carcinoma is the most common form of skin cancer. I don't know how we're doing on the time. Somebody got to tell me. I'm talking as fast as I can. Or we can stop anytime you want. It's the most common form of skin cancer. You know what they look like. Pearly, shiny, bleedy lesions, uh, etiology, intermittent sun exposure, and depending upon the anatomical site, no known precursors, except possibly P53. There's one study that says that. Uh, and it needs loose connective tissue stroma for growth. The majority of basal cells are easily treated. We do this all the time, and we already talked about it. You can excise them, especially if you want uh, an excision for margins and a nice linear scar, and, and cosmetically it might be suitable. They can be uh, cryosurgery. They can be electrodesicated. Um, and uh, we even talked about the superficial with the uh, chemotherapy. They're locally invasive for the most part. Nodular amorphia type can be more difficult to treat and they're more virulent. A small group of patients though, of course, have, are inoperable or the patient had prior radiation or surgeries and they might be metastatic to the lymph nodes, bone, or nerve. So basal cell development, basal cells advance locally through communications between tumor cells and mesenchymal stromal cells. Growth factor receptors for platelet-derived growth factor, PDGF systems, are upregulated in basal cell stroma, and ligand PDGF is expressed in tumor cells. Now, Gorlin syndrome is very important because it's the basis for studying basal cells. Uh, multiple basal cell carcinomas in the jaws, cysts, skeletal abnormalities, macrocephalia, palmar plantar pits, tumors, and it's an autosomal dominant. It has this patch one gene, patches from the Drosophila, and is a tumor suppressor gene. Here it is mutation truncated, and, or it's haploinsufficient, and it causes loss of heterogeneity and abnormality in either allele. So we have the hedgehog signaling pathway. Now I know you've already had two lectures about hedgehogs, so you know a little bit about this. Hedgehog signaling regulates events during early embryogenesis, as well as morphogenesis of specific organs and tissues, but is subsequently silenced in the adult. Cancer cells, though, reactivate it and results in tumors. There's evidence for aberrant activation of the hedgehog signaling pathway in, in uh, basal cells as studied in Gorlin syndrome, uh, which is what we said, caused by the patch one, Patch 1 loss of function or smoothened gain of function mutations are present in 90% of spontaneously arising basal cells. So they are now have strategies to inhibit the hedgehog signaling in basal cell carcinoma. Smoothened inactivators keep the hedgehog signaling in an inactive state. Uh, this, the, the GDC 40449 is Vismonogep, which now has been approved. It'd be on the market also, it'd be two years in January. 
Uh, the LDE-225 is a very interesting one. It's another company. I know what other company it is. And it's been completed in a phase two study, and it's being studied uh, not only orally, but topically as well. Now, here's this nice slide that shows you the hedgehog. Hedgehog ligands, sonic, Indian, and desert, bind transmembrane receptors to patch one. In the absence of ligand, patch one rep represses activity of the transmembrane receptor smoothened. Binding of ligand in patch one releases its inhibition of smoothen and activates downstream hedgehog signaling and through the activation of GL1 proteins. Now, the GL1 was first uh, described in uh, glioblastoma, so neurologists and oncologists are very used to uh, this kind of a pathway. Uh, the patch Gene protein product, the sonic hedgehog uh, receptor, is a membrane protein with 12 transmembrane regions and two extracellular loops and a putative sterile sensing domain. Patch protein binds to seven transmembrane G protein receptor, smoothened, activate when not bound to patch. TGFB and BCL dash two genes, remember we talked about that with actinics also, are involved. BCL2 protein suppresses apoptosis and is expressed also in BCCs. The uh, SHH patch signaling pathway induces patch transcription as a negative feedback for patch, and smoothen is suppressed. The SHH and receptor patch plus ligand dissociates to form a co-receptor, which is the smoothened. Complicated. For us, it's complicated. But this is, you know, shows you this whole diagram of how it does. Now, here is a man, and he's got this nice basal cell on the tip of his nose. And this girl, this one's the basal cell. This one is an intradermal nevus. And sometimes you just have to prove to them that that's what it is, not a pimple. Now, here's morphia. You see this whole area. This looks shiny, but this whole area is involved. Another morphia, see, it's flat, and it's hard to tell. It actually projects better than it does in person. So again, same treatment, what do we do? How do we decide what we want to do? We see the type of lesion. Is it hyperkeratotic? Is it flat? Is it scaly? Is it thick? Is it one or are there many? Is it, where is it, on the chest? Or we have to worry cosmetically on the face. How old is the patient? Is they going to tolerate it? What's their health and their compliance? Efficacy, tolerability, convenience, cosmesis, cost. Again, what's your goal? Is it to diagnose that you want some specimen to go to the lab? Is it to treat? And again, you can use multiple therapies in lesions with multiple, uh, in patients with multiple lesions. So again, we can do the biopsy, and also we can do an excisional biopsy, we can do a curatage, or if we want depth, we do a punch biopsy. Electrodesiccation is fast, and you get good curates. It's nice for multiple lesions, and if a patient can tolerate it. Of course, if a patient has a pacemaker, an older one, there is a way of inactivating the pacemaker with the, the metal thing under there. I don't want to be bothered with that, and I don't want to risk it, so I, won't do, I don't do electrodesiccation in those patients. Excision has excellent curates and uh, has good pathology for margins. So here is this man who, that was the lesion, and we decided to electrodesiccate him, and he healed. Uh, this man, this man was funny because 
He had it done the same time uh, Reagan did. And Reagan, they made a big deal. They brought him, he's the president, brought him to the hospital and whatever. And, and his daughter says, but you're going to do this in the office? I said, yeah, I'm going to do this in the office. <laughs> and I never forgot that. And look how nicely it healed. And she couldn't get over that, you know, we just did it in the office and Reagan made, went crazy about it. Cryosurgery achieves also a 98% cure rate. It's fast, it's simple. You can also do many lesions, but of course you're gonna make the depth to make a big blister, so you've gotta deal with that, which even nursing home patients, these nurses get all excited about it. Sometimes I just tell the patient, if you want to, come back to the office the next day and I'll debride it for you so it doesn't ooze and be miserable. Uh, and some take me up on it, some don't. And the topical chemotherapeutic, uh, um, modalities, uh, good for cluster areas, areas where poor visualization, like the man with the nose, so that you can make sure it's almost like a, a chemical tracing of Mohs. You can figure out how far the extent the lesion does. Uh, and it's good for superficial basal cells and cosmesis, we said. Now, Mohs chemosurgery, you know Mohs chemosurgery. So you need a special uh, Mohs uh, dermatologic surgeon to do this. Has excellent results because it delineates the lesions. Instead of cutting vertically, you're cutting horizontally, like you're cutting through cheese or bologna. They're looking at each slice, and as soon as it's done, it's done. So it's funny because patients and referring physicians think that this is going to make it a smaller lesion when it uh, sort of defect, but it may not. When used appropriately, it's really for hard to get areas around the nose or recurrences. So you might trace something out and wind up with a very big defect that requires even a plastic repair. Now this lady was very interesting because this is a basal cell on her forehead, but you see where it is. It's right near her eyebrow, so we have to worry an excision. It might raise up the eyebrow and uh, different things. We considered Mohs. We, we, we gave her all sorts of um, treatment options, but she chose radiation. Now, radiation is good for large lesions that are non-accessible for older individuals, but the logistics are hard. They have to go back and forth to the radiologist, whatever they, you know, the treatment is. Now, there is a company that wants to sell you, sell doctors, uh, a radiation unit uh, for their office. But this actually is a pain because, first of all, the unit is not inexpensive. And the room has to be lead-lined. You have to go through uh, CLIA and all sorts of things to do it so that it might not even really be uh, economically feasible, but that is on the market. And if you wanted to get involved with it, you can. I mean, years ago, like at the turn, well, I guess the turn of the century, dermatologists did use uh, radiation and x-ray machines in their offices. Uh, I don't think that would even fly now with, with uh, CLIA and everything else, and it, it isn't. But uh, my sister went to when we did, you know, when we were little girls. So here's another huge lesion. And again, combination therapy, curatage followed by imiquimod 5% or 3.75% or even 5-FU, increases cosmesis, increases your therapeutic area of treatment, and it can be used for palliation. Cryosurgery plus chemotherapeutic agents, excision plus chemotherapeutic agents gives you a nice scar. So this lady had a basal cell on her chin. We excised it, and the margins didn't come out the initial report that they were 100% clear. Now, you know sometimes you do that, and then you re-excise, and you do 
get another one that comes back cicatrix. So I put to her, you know, now what do you want to do? You want me to re-excise it? Do you want to go for Mohs or whatever? Or we could use imiquimod. So she opted for imiquimod and she had another lesion there and she healed and to date, you know, you got to watch these people just like the model because you didn't really get, you know, do what we've been taught to do. But she healed beautifully and it's doing well. So for completion, this is what uh, is rarely used for treatment of basal cells, interferon alpha, beta, and gamma, but it's in the literature. Bleomycin for basal cells and squamous cells and KAs, 5-fluorouracil for basal cells and KAs, interferon alpha for squamous cells and KAs, and methotrexate for uh, KAs have been used. While we're on the subject of uh, squamous cell, off-label too, we use the, I use seriotane off-label. Uh, there was an article saying it, isn't, it doesn't work as well, but Mark Lebwell uses it and I use it and we think that it does work very well. So going back to this, for advanced non-resectable basal cell carcinomas, we have the new drug, the, C, uh, the G. DC0449, and uh, again, it was approved last January. It's a small hedgehog path inhibitor. Uh, it's oral, and it binds to the smoothened protein, and it was also tested in uh, metastatic colorectal cancer, ovarian cancer, and medulloblastoma. So this is why oncologists feel very comfortable with it, but this is truly a dermatologic drug. There's no reason why dermatologists shouldn't be using it, nor should they be afraid of it. So here again, shows you again for, uh, just to reiterate, this simply the proliferation is stimulated with no uh, differentiated mediated by upregulation of GL1. And this was the first Everance study. It was an international single-armed multicenter phase two study with 71 locally invasive, 33 metastatic basal cell patients, 150 milligrams a day. And what's the endpoint? Well, the endpoint was either there was disease progression or toxicity. Now, there is no endpoint when you use this drug. And the reason is, if you're also trying to prevent lesions, so these people have chronic terrible lesions keep coming, you keep going. But if they want to drop out because they don't like the side effects or whatever, that's something else. But technically, there's no endpoint. Now, the response evaluation criteria was used. So it's really just a doctor observing to tell how well it did. 75% in phase one trial reported clinical benefit plus stable disease at any point in the trial which was 9.5 months. Side effects included chronic fatigue, loss of appetite, muscle pain and spasm, alopecia, taste, weight, uh, taste problems, you heard, uh, weight loss in 25%, and SAE is pneumonia. These SAEs, you know, when you do a clinical study, anything that can happen, heart attack and this, they're all reported, but truthfully, they're not really related to the drug. The drug is very safe. We don't do any clinical monitoring, no tests, no anything. For the muscle spasm, the people have asked me, you know, what do you do for the muscle spasm? Do you rub it? <laughs> it sounds funny, but there's really no treatment. Uh, on the other hand, you hear all these uh, things that people do. Pickle juice is supposed to help, and so is magnesium. I've heard also uh, uh, a lot of these, uh, you know, antioxidants, but uh, pickle juice and magnesium are the way to go. So this woman 
was very interesting because she came to me and it, it just shows. I never thought I would see this in my practice because I figured it by the you know, 1980s, 1990s, people know what this is. And the irony is she was a nurse, her daughter was a nurse, and her granddaughter was a nurse. And they thought I was just gonna put some cream on this to fix it, number one, and that her nose was gonna regrow. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And so, you know, the whole thing was just ridiculous. But here's a man who uh, has this huge, uh, recurrent, miserable basal cell. And so he was on the Vismonogem study. And what are the criteria? When do we use Vismonogem? The tumor size has to be greater to or equal to 10 uh, millimeters in diameter, only six on the face. Locally invasive basal cells extending into underlying tissue, cartilage, bone, or nerve. The tumor is in a location where surgery or radiation would be uh, difficult and it would result in the loss of function or disfigurement. And the expected morbidity, morbidity and deformity if the surgery or radiation were to be done wouldn't be good. Curative resection is unlikely or contraindicated. And if it's recurrent in the same spot, uh, what, if you did surgery twice and it's still recurrent, you think of something else. And of course, metastasis uh, should be considered to use vismonogen. So this also, this was a patient of mine. And what would you do? I mean, he's been long gone. He was an older man, as you can see. But you can see he's had flaps, he's had grafts, he's had everything, and he's had miserable recurrences. Now, bismonogem is difficult to use because it's hard to get it approved. Think of it like a biologic as far as money is concerned. And with these older patients, uh, you know, do you want to do it? Don't you want to do it? I had a patient who was actually a rockette, and she was in a nursing home for years and years. And they brought it to me. Why? Because if you've ever seen their clinical uh, throwaway, she had this huge basal cell on her chest, but these people in the nursing home thought that was infected. They also figured I was going to give her an antibiotic. Wasn't infected, was cancer cells sloughing off. So I thought that she should go on Vismonogeb. I contact her, her family in Florida, go through the whole thing, but I act like a consultant. I wrote my thing. Actually, I think I did talk to the internist. Everybody was on board, and I don't hear anything about it. So then they bring me another patient. So I say to the nurse, whatever happened to her? Well, they put her on hospice. That was the end of that. And ironically, she died last year, Christmas week, as a rocket. It just, it's very frustrating to use the drug. But the main thing is that I think, and I have a slide in my other slide deck where I talk about this, but if we can get people who, who like Gorland syndrome, people who are younger, not, not 20, 40s, 50s, who have these chronic recurrent basal cells and put them on Vismonogeb, that's really the key so that they don't turn into this poor man, in, 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 older, looking terrible. Okay, so here we have a 94-year-old man who presents with a long history of multiple basal cells and squamous cell carcinoma. He's treated in the past with electrodesiccation and curatage, excisional surgery, moles, grafts, flaps, everything. Has numerous recurrences and new lesions. He lives at home. However, he recently fell and injured his left hip, and so now he's in a rehabilitation facility undergoing physical therapy. They brought him to me. He has a venous embolism, GI hemorrhage in his past, osteoarthrosis, currently takes warfarin and exoprem, metropole, Tylenol, and um, prostate nitrosyl. So what do you think? There he is. 
And he's walking around. He's living. He's, he's out in the public. He's going to the A&P. Do you see he want to walk around like this? Now, you can see he's had an ear lesion done. He's got this. Now, this, I electrotesticated this lightly because I had a, since he was not originally my patient, in preparation, I, I had a biopsy. I had to a, I had a prove, you know, what he had. This, he had had an excision, and it was a squamous cell. Okay, we're getting there. And so he would be a good candidate for bismonogeb. He's a professor who was uh, also uh, working with recurrent lesions, and he was on bismonogeb. And uh, the, the toxicities, he continued his teaching career, and he did uh, very, very well. Uh, here's the man also. Now look at this eye. Now, the other thing that I want to say in closing, because we're getting to, to, to the end, is that bismonogeb really should be a neoadjuvant, I feel, a neoadjuvant drug. In other words, it can, it can get rid of lesions, but it can also just shrink them. And then if it just shrinks them and you still have multiple lesions, what do you do? Can you use other modalities and try to, you know, clear it out? The answer is yes. Now, there's certainly no data on that, but that's going to be the next phase of everything. Combination. Uh, curatage plus cryo, curatage plus topical, excision plus topical, anything plus oral. Uh, that's bismonogem. It's the only oral. Anything plus radiation. You've got to strategize. You've got to use sunscreen to prevent and uh, just, just make your own mind and go to it. Now, the LDE-225 is the other company's um, hedgehog uh, uh, drug, and they're in studies. I'm going to try to go fast. They're doing very well, but they're also working on it topically. Now, I've been told that bismonogeb was looked into topically, but it can't be absorbed through, and they, they discarded that. This, they're still sort of working on it, but it's going to Planned food to end in another year, uh, September 2014. So it could also be discarded. But of course, you know, we like that 0.75% uh, in a cream or vehicle base, and they got good results. 12 showed clinical response, nine partial responses. So it does sound good. Uh, squamous cell, we know about it. It can be aggressive. It can be metastasized. The AKs can go into it. I told you that you can, besides using your traditional treatments, you can use uh, uh, oral uh, seriotane. Now, what about combination? You know, this is the one thing, too. Patients fasting light eyes, they can have everything. AK, squamous cells, basal cells. Do you put them on everything? Yeah, you can. Actually, it's also, this is totally off-label, but Mark Lebel has done it, and I've done it. You put it on seriotane and vismonogeb and try to see, you know, what it does, if they can tolerate everything and if they can pay for everything. Okay, you know that, uh, that squamous cells is the second most common skin cancer, 90% in the head and neck and uh, the high risk factors and the associations with dialysis. This is why in Mount Sinai you see all these um, KAs. You see it not only in Mount Sinai. And uh, the Joint Commission has recategorized them and telling you the uh, prognosis. That's it. I would never even go through this slide. I'm just telling you it's available if you needed to see it and this one, and you know, but this has a different etiology. It's cumulative UV radiation, uh, and it's a single transferred keratinocyte. Okay, so we know invasive squamous cells, we know superficial basal cells, we know verrucous squamous cells, and I say basal cells, I mean squamous cells, and keratoid canthoma, which when I was in training, we used to say was a benign growth that acted malignant. Now it is categorized as a subcategory of um, squamous cell carcinoma. So there you have it.
from the ear on the finger, this huge, terrible-looking thing. Look at that. I don't know how people let it go so far. I really don't. This is a very unusual type of a, um, a cancer, which we did radiation on. Typical KA, KA in the ear, and the treatment we know. We've been through it, and the, uh, we talked, that's the oral and combination again. Experimentally, there's been radiation paint. There's this, uh, the LDE that's been used in this, itraconazole. I mean, people try all sorts of things. And uh, here is, uh, this man is, is really AKs, but he keeps recurring, keeps recurring. I wonder maybe, you know, he should be on soriotane. Okay, Merkel cell, we won't go into because I think that uh, we're getting towards the end. This is also a Merkel cell tumor. Prophylaxis, we talked about. Again, that slide. This is the basic slide. If you know this slide, you'll know how to treat, but then you've got to use your own clinical judgment what to do for your patient. And there she is, thinking she's beautiful in the sun, but of course she isn't. And uh, I guess at this point I'll just take uh, questions, and, uh, and I, what can I answer for you? Yes, ma'am. Are you talking field or unique lesions? More field, and you just got to keep redoing. I mean, I'll do, uh, let's say I'll do a topical amiquimod, and then the next four months we might do PDT and, or combination and, and just keep after them. They eventually, if they stick with you, like, like this uh, Irishman that I was telling you about, eventually they sort of die. You, you just come in all of a sudden, you say, oh, my God, there aren't too many. You know, you, you sort of catch up with them. You just have to be consistent and keep going. You're welcome. Oh, Heliocare. That's the, that's the next part of this lecture, which we didn't get to. But Heliocare uh, isn't really proven. On the other hand, it, it, it's an oral drug that's supposed to help prevent uh, sunburn. So you can take it, but you still need to use sunscreen. And uh, the answer is yes, but you still need to use sunscreen. Just as with clothing, you know, uh, there are products that are on the market that you can add to the uh, laundry to increase the SPF. You can buy a, a clothing with a high SPF, but you still have to use sunscreen. Hi. When you're treating um, the basal cell with ED and C followed by 5-FU, yes. how long do you wait before you begin the topical? Oh, I do it as soon as I can. Start it right away the next day? You, you, you could do it the next day, or sometimes I give it another day. You, know, you don't want them to inflate, but the point is you don't want it to heal. If it starts to heal, it's not going to get through. You want it to be moist to do its thing. Okay. Great. Thanks. You're welcome. Um, for the Medicare patient or the patient with a high deductible that would really benefit from a topical chemotherapy, what, what, would, what one do you feel in your well, experience has been the most cost-effective for the patient that would well, actually Well, either it? it's going to be 5-FU or it's going to be PDT if you can do that. Okay. You know, or cry, cryo and you do what you can. That's what I meant also by palliation. And it may not be what you want to do, but it just may be what you have to do because of cost. How high does the soriotane dose have to be before you find it to be effective for SECs? I use anywhere from, uh, from 20 to 25 milligrams, whatever the patient can take, but 20 is okay too. Is, is it getting covered by insurance? If it's just well, the, the answer is SEC. no. I mean, you yeah. know, it, you're using it off label, so, yeah. you know, you've got to be inventive, you know. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> 
Hi, I actually have two questions. First, do you ever get chemical peels covered? Do I ever get chemical peels covered? The answer is yes or no. I tell the patient, even for acne when I do a chemical peel, that it's not covered, but if they want to try to fight with their insurance company and get it covered, um, they, uh, they can. Just under AK Just code? Un um, I'm trying to think how we do it. Yeah, I guess just under AK we can. Okay. But it still depends upon their insurance company. And, and I'm telling you, especially 2014, listen, you see what just happened with this Obama now? They canceled my son's insurance. Who knows if it's going to be reversed now because of whatever he said. I mean, nobody knows what's going to happen January. Right. And that I tell them, too. And that has nothing to do with Obama. It has to do every year. Every year, insurance has changed. What was covered last year, you know, these companies can change it if they want the next year when their renewals come up. So, you know, we always tell them that, you know, I can't guarantee any of it. And are you familiar with any studies on PDT and superficial basal cell or squamous cell in situ? It has been used. There haven't been, and there is some case reports in the literature, but they have not gone for approval for it, but it does work in uh, superficial and bones. Okay, yeah, we use it a lot, actually, yeah. and I see good results, but I just don't have the actual studies to No, there, there are case reports. To. I think that JAD had one uh, last year or whatever, but it's just a case report, and they okay. haven't gone for an indication. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you.